to to most people, this story isn't going to mean much because it's about a particular area in the city, uh, Walstoney Creek, actually, uh, Queenston Road near Centennial. Basically, Hamilton's planning committee unanimously rejected a development application that would dramatically change the skyline in Stony Creek. New Horizon wanted to build a 19-story tower consisting of 219 apartment units uh, in Queenston Centennial. The developer, I mean, this isn't done yet. They rejected it, but the developer could take the case to the Ontario Municipal Board um, and take this further and fight it a little more. So it's been rejected. Um, Here's the thing. This is the part that actually caught my attention, I thought was kind of interesting. So if you look at the the residents in the area were so opposed to this apartment building uh, for different reasons. You know, they thought it might affect the view. Some people are just completely off their rocker. I heard Some one, people thought des- undesirables might move into well, the Well, that's the part I'm getting to. Um, yeah, so that that's a big part of it. But like some people are completely, I mean, uh, you know what though? I wonder sometimes. It's great that people are civically engaged and want to participate. But who has the time to worry about some of these things? Someone was worried that there's a park nearby and the kids in the park when they're playing get loud. And with the apartment there, it would create an echo (laughs) with the noise, which I don't even know if that's scientifically accurate. But on top of that, really, children playing is your big issue. So, I mean, I'd assume this was the kind of person that doesn't like people, you know, kids playing on his lawn or anything. I, I would actually assume that they have a real reason and they didn't, uh, they didn't say. want to say it. Well, the, there was a lot of tiptoeing around. In fact, I couldn't even, I was going to take audio from some of the people there. First of all, it was, it's, a, it's no offense to the people. Again, they're getting engaged. Good for them. But I mean, it's incredibly boring to listen to like <laughs> a bunch of people parade up and constantly, you know, and it's. It's a, people, a lot of people didn't prepare, didn't write anything down. And it's, boy, working on city, I got to tell you, provincial or municipal politics, being a counselor, just looks, it looks terrible. I mean, you got to really be into the job to be able to do that. I mean, the money's not so bad. Yeah. But I mean, oh, I, just, I couldn't even listen. So, but, but yeah, so, so some, so different people came up and do have you heard of the term Luke NIMBY? This is new. I don't think it's new. It's new to me. Uh, I, it sounds familiar, but... NIMBY is not in my backyard. I had, I had to ask around. Okay. So not in my backyard is like this term that basically, for a lot of these residents, would, would fall under that category. Um, so here are some of the quotes that I took f- from the residents. And thank you to Ryan McGreal, who nicely posted it on a website for me to be able to... It's so easy when it's all in Isn't one Isn't it place. nice? I don't have to do it myself. don't have to do work. Yeah. Um, so one person... Uh, the residents do not want more noise and pollution, including illegal dumping. A lot of people were really fixated on illegal dumping in the area. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if there's some kind of history there, but okay, forget that for now. Um, the residents do not want loss of privacy. The residents do not want erosion of home values. Again, sometimes you got to read between the lines. They don't want the values of their homes going down. Okay, um, and here it is here. The residents do not want crime increase that statistically accompanies similar projects. It's a very nice way of putting it. You don't want poor people living in your area. I mean, is there even numbers out for how much these apartments are going to be? Like, no. can they can they prove that it's low-income no. housing? No, that's the point. So I'll play something for Matthew Green in a bit, but there's no indication of where this is going. Um, but everyone assumed that affordable housing was going to be a part of this. And by the way, this idea of... The idea of affordable housing is you don't want to create quote unquote ghettos. In other words, there's some people out there that want to like, it's a, you ever see the movie, was it District 9? 
District 9. The was, one with the aliens yeah, with the in aliens. South Africa. Yeah, yeah, they want to put everyone in like a little commune that are, you know, that have less money and just kind of keep them behind like a fence so that they don't have to get near them. Well, the idea of affordable housing is if you integrate it into areas that aren't affordable housing. In other words, if you have a, you know, if you have a block stretch of homes and one or two of them are affordable housing, it's 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 a nice way to assimilate everybody and it's not you're not singling anyone out and you know, it just it just it make, it's it's good for everybody. You don't want to create blocks and blocks and blocks of affordable housing and and you know, treat the area like a just a bunch of pariahs in the neighborhood. Like the prawns in District Nine, which is one of my favorite movies, by the way. Um, so that that's one. So okay, so increased crime, whatever. Um, it's now coming out as reported in the Stony Creek News that it will have affordable housing units. Not confirmed. At one point, that would have been called geared to income or low income housing. However, to be politically correct, it's now called affordable housing. Okay. However, it does not change the effect. It is intended to have a mixture in the building which everyone, if truthful, will recognize does not work and will detract from the area. So they don't even want those poor, those bums mixing with, with us. And by us, I'm not including me in that, but, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the, the folk that are of high, high, high brow folk in the area. I, I'm more curious about how you would have both. I, I don't know that I've ever seen an apartment building that has a true mixture of... In the same building? Yeah. I don't know an example personally. I mean, I know there's housing areas that are like that. But sure, I, I know, know I know there's areas, but yeah. I don't know about like single buildings that yeah. have, have combination and, of expensive you know, and, and yeah, expensive because then, units. but but and I actually think that's a pretty good idea. Again, it's better just to integrate everything rather sure. than you know having certain peak because it's also it's demoralizing. I mean, you know, there are a lot of statistics that show that when you know you, when you treat someone like they're lesser, they be they start thinking they are and they act that way. Um, and you know, what, you know what it allows, though, if you have that mixture, it mm. allows the people who are in low income to feel like they're not in low income anymore, to feel like yeah, they aren't. It doesn't defeat you. It's, yeah. it's just a boost. It just makes you feel a little bit better that, you know, Be- because who wants it, to live in a quote unquote ghetto area? Yeah. Like I have lived in some bad apartment buildings Same here. in my time yeah. and, and it sucks living in well, those. W- listen, we're both, I mean, you've lived downtown. Yeah, I, I, and, I am and I lived in Rexdale in Toronto as well. Yeah, and I live downtown now, and I've lived in you know three different places. Um, I've been all over downtown, and and yeah, I mean, I get it. There are some areas that are not so great. I I mean, I don't have a high income area that I live in now. I mean, I'm in like I'm in the Stinson neighborhood area. There are, I mean, listen, in that area, you get house some houses are nine hundred grand, and a lot of it's just rentals. And you know, again, it's not a great, but. Do I fear for my life? No, not not even not even a little bit. But there's more, because this is the one. I, this was my favorite quote out of all of them, um, from a particular resident. Before moving, Luke, you're gonna want to hear this one. This was the last one. This is from um, another resident. Before moving to Stony Creek, I lived in Burlington. When I moved to Stony Creek, I have to admit I was disappointed to see the apartment buildings on the opposite side of Queenston. Those are the affordable income ones. So this. So they're saying, listen, I'm from Burlington. I didn't come here to, you know, live with all these invalids. And it's like, oh, it, boy. they were visibly full of low income families. Yes. Which she said, and not at all comparable to the opposite side of the road. <laughs> see, put see, them somewhere else. <laughs> I'm imagining that that person who, who is doing that is like an old timey lady with a fan who is just constantly going, oh, my stars. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Tricky tea. Um, um, Amanda, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi, I was just going to say, I 
was just calling. I was listening to your conversation about affordable housing. You were mentioning uh, about you haven't heard of any um, any kind of mixed apartment buildings or mixed complexes yep. that have both low-income uh, housing. Yep. And I just wanted to let you guys know, um, if you're not aware, we do have cooperative housing, which is um, a different kind of model where the tenants or the members that live there actually elect a board of directors and they maintain and run the assets. They, uh, we have, we've got a ton of them in, in Hamilton alone. Okay, and there's affordable housing in there? I am not. I don't, don't know if I understand. Yeah, well, I know um, for some of them, there are some that are federally funded. There's some that are municipally funded. So okay. Funded, they receive people from the Hamilton wait list. Uh, but federally funded cooperatives actually um, accept applications, and they can provide a certain number of subsidized units okay. uh, based on income. That's interesting. Yeah. There you go. So I just wanted to share. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Thanks for the information. No problem. We, l- we learned something. See, once in a while we learn something. Uh, but the Burlington lady was my favorite. By far my... That's why I saved that one for last. When I moved to Stony Creek, I was appalled. I mean, I'm from Burlington. I didn't expect... The, the one side of the street, you know, we were drinking tea. On the other side, they were eating coffee grounds out of uh, the dumpster. Well, you know, she should have probably just gone to Dundas then. Because then she wouldn't have had to deal with an apartment building ever going up. Because they have managed to get it into... I, I don't even know. I guess as they're part of Hamilton, it's part of the Hamilton. But they don't get apartment. I didn't know building that. code. Oh yeah, yeah. They have a they have a height limit. Oh, to, okay. uh, well, to buildings. Yeah, which I, is yeah, which I think is just great. There's there's nothing like a part of the big city that wants to have all the benefits of a big city, but pretend like it's still a small town. Look at Luke. Well, like it's, it. it's, it's but I it, like it. It's no, sort of listen. the same thing, right? And, yeah. And to be honest, it's. I don't know if that was specifically, it probably wasn't specifically done to eliminate low-income housing, but even if that no. was its goal by some people, it certainly hasn't. There is there is still quite a bit of poverty in Dundas, and yeah. all it is is it's closer to the ground than well, in Hamilton. Well, okay, so, and we've, t- I think we've, t- I don't know if we talked about this yesterday or not, it might have been off the air, or I can't remember, but um, but we're t- the mountain has pockets of yes. poverty that are so bad, and again, Okay, it doesn't mean that you don't have to be in, a, in an apartment building to be on that poverty line or below yeah, absolutely. it. absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this whole thing, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I mean, I don't know. I think my, my thought, I, I think my mindset has changed since moving downtown. I think when I, like, I spent my whole life on the mountain. Yeah. My, and and I thought this, and I, I'll admit, I was this person. But you move downtown, and you real, and I, you don't even notice it. it. Of course, there's different. First of all, I mean, what, what am I, a, a Rockefeller? Like, it's not exactly <laughs> like I'm a highbrow. So I, I'm sitting like, who am I to, you know, to judge anybody else? And again, I've lived in a part. Of course, you get, you, yeah. I mean, there's there's crime downtown. Okay. I mean, I don't feel I'm not in fear for my life living downtown. When I first moved downtown, getting people to visit me was like. I mean, it was a no one wants to see me, but on top of that, <laughs> everyone was like terrified to park their car downtown. Yeah, no, it's it's living downtown. It was I think it was the best thing I ever did because I was a mountain kid for, mm-hmm. for the majority of my life, and that the only reason I would come downtown was to go to the stadium or go to the arena, and yeah. that's and when I say downtown, I mean down the mountain. I would I lived on the mountain. I went to school on the mountain. Everything was on the mountain. Yeah. So I see how people can get into that. Well, mindset. and you don't and you don't have the op, like now, you know, it's, it's changed whereas, you know, back uh, living on the mountain when you wanted to 
eat when you want to go out to you'd go to like Upper James or you'd go to like yeah. some some big chain. Yep. But now that you know the f- it's been kind of a food renaissance downtown. A lot of people are more people are going downtown. Now I, I know gentrification is always a concern, and it's it's almost like a. I mean, there's it's hard to prevent gentrification when you're trying to develop an area. There's a there's a certain it's it's an ugly word. People have made it into an ugly word, but mm-hmm. there are there are parts of it that are still useful. Yeah. I, I want to say like because I <laughs> there was there's a uh, there's the building the condo building going up where the old church was on James Street mm-hmm. uh, the Connolly. South. I think that's what it is. Yeah. yeah, they still have the front of the church yeah. there. And they brilliantly provided a graffiti board for people to graffiti on. And that turned into a gentrification is as mm-hmm. ugly as it sounds. Yeah, And I think that in the case of something like that, that is a good project. And and sometimes there are good projects that come out of gentrification. There mm-hmm. is issues, obviously. It pushes yeah, it's an ugly income. word. I mean, it's the word that people take issue with. And, and it pushes low-income people out of areas. But there has to be a balance somewhere. But, because there And that's are, why the integration... I mean, that's the point and, of the and integration, integration is right? much better. It, it's when you can just get it all in, instead of pushing everything out to the outskirts. I mean, and that's what ends up happening. Um, you know, there's a way to make it. And that's why, you know, affordable housing's great. It's just, I don't like the idea of clumping it all together in one spot. Um, anyway, so after these comments and after the letters were read, uh, Matthew Green, of course, <laughs> was the first to stand up. I do, however, uh, want to just address some comments that were made that I felt were derogatory to people that are in affordable situations or low-income situations. Uh, the statement was made, and it, I, I view it as a classist NIMBYA statement and not uh, worthy of meriting any consideration for how we do development or planning. I would say that it's probably absurd to think that those units as presented are going to end up being affordable housing, uh, which, much to my dismay, um, would love the opportunity to see more of those types of developments. But I would, I would firmly push back on the assertion that density and, uh, and affordable housing automatically results in the types of pressures, although um, yeah, especially per capita and there's all types of problematic assertions made in that statement. So I just want to go on the record right now and state that uh, anything derogatory related to people who are lower income, or or let's face it, not even just lower income, middle class people, working class families um, have a hard time paying for some of these kind of developments. And, and, you know, I I just don't see it as being a rationale, and I just caution the public of bringing that forward because I will reject that every single time yeah and i gotta tell you the idea of like affordable you know the more i think i i need affordable housing i I mean i can't afford these developments that that are going up i hope there's a i can't live without some kind of affordable housing because who's going to be able to and if you live downtown and you want to rent downtown and you haven't checked the rental prices in a while you're in for a huge surprise yeah a couple things uh councillor green strings a lot of five dollar words together in a row there at the beginning Mm -hmm. um I think he needs to speak a little more. <laughs> like, I, I got the gist of it, but yeah. he, he he could probably speak a little more simply uh, to get his point across better. Um, the the other thing is, it's hard for me to blame a developer for not wanting to put up an affordable housing development apartment building as mm-hmm. a new as a new thing. As much as I would love to see affordable housing too, because yeah, you know, I mean, I if need you're that. a developer, you're, it, you're you're trying to make money exactly. I mean, I and in the, today's housing market, you want them to, but. They obviously are going to put up ones that, that will make them the most money. But you are right. I definitely need more affordable housing because I I did live downtown. I ended up having to uh, move back home simply because I could not afford, when one of my roommates got married, to continue mm-hmm. having that place. 
and and it was it was absolutely a yeah. lower end place. If you're if you're looking to live somewhere by yourself downtown, um, and you're looking at the low end of something decent, and by decent I mean a nice area or at least just a nice enough place, the low end we're talking seven fifty to eight hundred dollars. That's yeah. absolute bottom. Uh, and then you're going to have to start going up if you want certain things, if you want certain amenities, if you want parking, if you want laundry. I mean, these are simple things too. Uh, air conditioning. I mean, you're lucky if you even get offered air conditioning. But now, yeah, now you're hitting the nine hundred thousand, you know, thousand dollars. That's for a one bedroom. That's there's bachelors, you know, going yeah. for you know a grand. Yeah, and th- and that's that's what's crazy to me is looking at it is I can't afford to live on my own. And and one of the roommates that I had who had to find a place on his own, he essentially lives in a hut. Like it's an apartment building, yeah. but the size of it is so small. But when you're looking for an apartment for multiple people, mm-hmm. for you suddenly add a second person, it's like, well, well, now we need a second bedroom. The prices don't go that f- much further no. up. And that's that's what's crazy to me is why is the starting point so high? Yeah. But there's not really yeah. much. For 200 bucks more, you can get a two-bedroom. You exactly. might as well find a roommate like when, and split the difference. When you're talking about 800 being a price for a for a one-bedroom place, mm-hmm. that's that's barely uh, less than the price that I've been looking at for two-bedroom places. Yeah, yeah there is. Um, I was out. I was in the King William area just because of all the nice, you know, they've got amazing restaurants in that area. And I was, I was looking it up and I was looking, oh, there's a bunch of rentals up there. I just had a curiosity. I, I looked it up. And, you know, these were 1800 bucks a month, two grand a month. For one-bedroom rentals. Well, I don't think you're the target audience for those rentals. No. I, I feel like that's for the um, coming from Toronto. Yeah. Uh, but that's if you want to live in a nice area. Scene, yeah. No, I know. But Have uh, lots of money from mommy and daddy. Yeah. I think the average price of a rental was like eight ninety five last checked. Um, and believe me, when you get into rentals, there's some really bad rentals out there. Oh, uh, yeah. I... I remember, you know how many times I've walked up to a unit because I asked to see it and then turned around immediately because the one, the, all the, <laughs> it was, there was like three attached and they all had the the house numbers were written on a piece of lined paper and, <laughs> and taped wow. to the front of that. And I was like, I can't. The other place was I was walking around inside. I was actually humored them. I went in and she looked around. She goes, um, I think this is where, no. Oh, this one doesn't have a smoke detector. I go, what? This is that like illegal or something? Like, I, so I just I yeah, got out the, of there. The place that I that I lived, we um, it, now honestly, looking back, they were probably trying to get us to leave, mm. but we had a company that was essentially our that we paid, but somebody else owned our building. It was sort of like a franchising thing, like a McDonald's, how it's owned by somebody else, but it's operated by McDonald's, and so we would have to call this company to get anything fixed, but the building owner got to say yes or no so didn't matter what we needed fixed the answer was always no until the ceiling fell on me one morning oh and that's uh, great we, we had a crack in the ceiling uh since i moved in uh didn't really think anything of it and then it was probably around because obviously i'm here late at night it was around 9 30 so i was still asleep 9 30 in the morning mm-hmm. and there was this very loud crack and uh, i got showered the ceiling, in uh, yeah. plaster yeah and then and the that, that was the only you. time we had uh, actual work done on our place well there you go so so we need affordable housing yeah so where are these where are these bums that the burlington people that moved to sony creek don't want to see in their neighborhood i mean in fairness have you looked at us this is fair <laughs> this is why we're on the radio uh all right let's take a break uh when we come back we're gonna get uh we're gonna get updated on all that's happening with the situation in, in quebec city and the mosque shooting and now attention is starting to be diverted to politicians in Quebec 
You know, a lot of people jumped on Trump and blame. And of course, I mean, listen, Trump obviously has a part in this. Uh, but local politics in Quebec City can get pretty nasty. And uh, there's a lot of movements, very nationalistic movements. And uh, we're going to get in touch with some of those. We're going to speak to Raquel Fletcher from Global News, Quebec City. And um, also hate crimes are on the rise in Montreal, in Quebec City, after the mosque shooting. So it's, it's, it's an odd time. And uh, we'll just kind of get the latest, what's going on there. And uh, lots more coming up. Stay tuned. I was surprised at the numbers myself just looking at it escalate from 2013. It went from 81 reported hate crimes to 89 to 112 to 137 in 2016. And, of course, you know, it ends with, well, hopefully it ends. And that's the end of anything too brutal. But it ends with, you know, a mosque shooting. And then, uh, well, I guess it didn't end because hate crimes are on the rise since that event. Uh, joining us now, Raquel Fletcher from Global News, based in Quebec City. And uh, let me just get, uh, again, new phone system. I'm still learning as I, I go here. Uh, Raquel. Hi. Hi, there we go. We got you on. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe if at any point during this interview I, I sound ignorant, it's because I kind of am to, you know, what's going on in Quebec. That The, the numbers, the fact that they're escalating from 2013. Mm-hmm. I mean, that in itself is concerning and it almost, you know, anytime a tragedy like that happens, like it did on Sunday night, you never say you expected it, but then you look at the numbers and you go, well, it's almost like it was, you know, it, it was rising so much that it, it almost had to come to a head at some point. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what to say. I don't know if anyone knows uh, what to make of those numbers mm-hmm. at, at this point right now. It's all uh, pretty fresh here in Quebec City. Um, uh, pretty shocking still. Yeah. And the fact that there have been, uh, now again, these are, you know, reports. So we don't know if they were hate crimes or not. But since Sunday night, um, they are persisting. Is there a sense that, I mean, are people, is the, do you kind of feel the tension? I mean, do people feel unsafe? Yeah, I would imagine that they they feel unsafe now, and that um, uh, you know they have felt unsafe uh, after other events. You know, we I talked about uh, there being a pig head dropped uh, this summer on the doorsteps of this very mosque, mm-hmm. um, and as a result of that, the mosque was actually trying to get more security uh, in place for a while. Um, so I think that Muslims you know, given what's happening south of the border as well. Um, Muslims in North America in general feel like they are uh, targeted, maybe, mm-hmm. um, uh, the target of, of hate crimes. This morning, you know, the the premier came out and said, you know, he's been hearing reports of, of Muslim women being spat on in the street or, you know, people uh, pulling off someone's hijab, that, mm. that kind of thing. So uh, definitely when you hear stories like that, especially coming from our premier, uh, I think that that, that gives a lot of uh, yeah. cause for thought, a lot of concern, yeah, for the, sure. And, you know, there are politicians in Quebec City that have kind of pushed this, you know, nationalist, um, I hate using the term alt-right, but, um, you know, that kind of agenda, that preying on fear. And, and I mean, how much, you know, as much as Trump is kind of at the center of this, how about the local politician, you know, on the provincial level and municipal? I mean, are, are there certain politicians that are kind of feeling the heat right now and people are pointing at them and saying, like, hey, you contributed to this? 
Well, I think the thing to remember in Quebec City is that this has been an ongoing issue since long before Trump. Um, we we refer to identity politics in in Quebec mm-hmm. quite often. Uh, and for people who don't live in Quebec, particularly English Canadians, I think it's it's hard for them sometimes to understand the context here. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know there there are two camps on this. I guess we can say there. Um, when we talk about the Quebec context, we we talk about people who want to obviously protect the French language and their culture and their heritage. And and when I say it like that, um, it doesn't sound like it's a negative thing. But the negative thing comes out of the fact that that um, that contradicts, if you will, the idea of multiculturalism. Right. Uh, so, you know, people who are scared about losing their language and their culture and their heritage are not necessarily open to accepting uh, new new immigrants and new cultures and, and new cultural communities uh, in their in their communities. Uh, sorry, in their cities, I mean. Mm-hmm. So you, you have sort of the one camp that is is open to multiculturalism, uh, like we try to embrace in the rest of Canada. And there's another camp that uh, really wants to sort of, uh, we use the word in French, encadrement, which means to regulate or to frame, if you, uh, quite literally, to frame uh, Quebec values and identity and to have really strict rules um, about religious accommodations. Yeah, and just some of the, you know, I'm just kind of again, I'm getting my information on, you know, you know, things like Twitter and just reading up on this. Um, you know, there's been mention of anti-halal food campaigns, uh, anti-hijab laws. Uh, again, it, it's if if you're, you know, if you're a politician and you are using this as a tool for re-election, I just I can't help but think. And in fact, you know, the premier today said that you know we're all responsible. In this, mm-hmm. I mean, is there a feeling that this is at least, uh, you know, maybe going to open people's eyes and, and say, okay, we have to now stand up to this kind of um, hate speech in a sense? I hope so. But uh, what the premier was talking about today is saying that, uh, you know, we need to be really careful about our words mm-hmm. is only one part of the equation. I, I don't want to conflate um what politicians are saying in Quebec, I don't want to say that it's necessarily hate speech. Um, what I think people should be everywhere, your listeners included, should be concerned about is um, being knowledgeable and not talking about things that they don't know about. Um, and I think that that is also part of part of the problem. Um, you know, uh, the anti-hijab law that you mentioned, it doesn't come from a mean, hateful place at all. There are lots of feminists. Quebec, Quebec the province of Quebec is uh, a very feminist province. Mm-hmm. We really, really value equality, uh, equality, uh, equality between, yeah. uh, between the sexes. So the hijab is a point of contention for a lot of people because they see it as a sign of oppression of women. And is that necessarily what it is for every woman who wears the hijab? And that's the question that we need to be we need to be posing. So it doesn't it, what the the discourse, if you will, doesn't necessarily come from a place of hatred. It comes from definitely a place of political ideology or opinion, mm-hmm. um, and it quite you know often doesn't come from a place of knowledge. I don't know if that makes sense. I just wanted to make no, um, it makes sense. 
Yeah, I just wanted to make that clear that we're not always talking about hate speech. Sometimes we're just, you know, talking uh, ignorantly about things that we don't know about. I mean, we talk about Islam, um, and there's lots of people who don't realize that, you know, Jesus is uh, a person in the Quran. They don't know that there's a mention of Jesus in the Quran. Mm -hmm. They think that Islam is, you know, a a foreign religion, if you will. Mm -hmm. So there, there are a lot of people that, you know, just need to be more... Um, educated. Yeah, more educated. Yeah. Um, okay, well, listen, I appreciate you coming on the program. I, I, I learned something, which is, which is you know, listen, I'm always up for learning, so I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, Raquel, thank you very much, and, and you know, keep, keep up with the great coverage, because Global's definitely been our main source of information during this whole thing, so we appreciate it. Good, good to hear that. Thanks so much. Okay, take care. Uh, Raquel Fletcher. Remember, you know what I just, the anti, that halal thing reminded me of that guy that was, uh, that hillbilly heaven guy in Hamilton. Which oh, with the Confederate flag. He, well, it started with no halal. Like, he, he put a sign out in front of his, I think everything's, I think he's, compl- you know, everything went out of business because yeah, yeah, he stopped getting free advertising on all the media outlets, including ours. Um, he was on every day for a while. But, yeah, he started, he, he always had, he started a new controversy in order to get his name out there. And the first one was he put up a sign that said, only English, no halal, whatever. And, you know, people said, listen, he can put whatever he wants on his storefront window. And other people said, hey, that's very, you know, you're you're, make, you're kind of making people feel uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I got a problem with that sign. Uh, well, I, I never had a problem with the flag because... Well, see, I'm opposite. See, really? I, th- I thought the flag was worse than that. But the point is, is here's someone who's clearly just trying to stir things up to get attention. Of course. And uh, it worked for a bit. I think he ended up opening like a second location. But yeah, he as had two at one As far point. as I know, I don't think either of them are still up. No. Nope. Yeah, again, you, people are using it as a, as a, as a what, political tool and, be, you know, being careful what you say. Everyone, this whole, like, anti, you know, politically correct thing. Yeah, you know what? So we all, no matter where we are, we all censor ourselves to a degree. You can't go to your workplace and say anything you want. You, you can't walk into someone's funeral and say whatever you want. Like, we all have a level of sensitivity in us. I don't know why it's so People take so offense. I mean, even the per- whoever, the most anti PC person in the world, whoever that is, at some point does use a filter. Uh, so I, I mean, I don't understand this whole thing. Gary Deerenfeld joins us. He is he is literally your social worker because that's what his website says. Hi, Gary. Hey, Anthony. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So uh, the province and the reason I called you, you know, you know the, the province launching a support program for jurors who feel they need counseling after sitting on a trial or a coroner's inquest it's it's one of those things you know that if you know you you understand that they probably do see some bad things but you never really worry about them you never think well what happens to them after um so it's interesting i mean is a program like this overdue in a way um first of all there was a program i, I believe already in place but the amount of help available um wasn't great enough to meet the needs of the clients and so, yeah, we do need something like this in, in place. I don't know that the general public uh, necessarily knows or understands. When you're sitting on a jury, you are exposed to all the gory details of the crime. And, you know, we just went through that uh, awful yeah. um, experience here in Hamilton. And uh, there were horrific details of how uh, one gentleman's body was disposed of. And to listen to those graphic accounts, to experience the anguish as well uh, of the loved ones in the courtroom, 
has a tremendous impact on those on the jury and no anyone else actually in the courtroom. But those on the jury, they're there, they're serving, um, uh, you know, they're, they're providing a service. And so there's there's a duty to respond to their needs as a result. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. It's not even really something they're volunteering for. Sometimes they're essentially forced into it as well. <laughs> well, that that's the thing. We have, um, forget our rights as citizens, we have responsibilities as citizens. And one of those responsibilities... Uh, uh, from time to time is to serve on a jury, and whatever that jury is, or you know whatever the offense is, we don't choose the offense. We get chosen uh, to sit on a jury. And you know when we when we consider what the jurors are exposed to, um, there's a a concept known as vicarious trauma. Mm. So I'm not traumatized because I was there personally, but vicariously through hearing the events, and um, being exposed to the to the events on others, which is very traumatic, um, it can so impact our lives. And and there are particular um, we see particular patterns of disturbances in some people who are affected by these things. So those disturbances can include disturbances of sleep, eating, um, intimacy. Uh, things can get worse from there. We can have uh, nightmares, um, flashbacks where where we where we feel we are witnessing and reliving the other person's events as they were uh, told to us. And these these events, the nightmares, the the vivid imagery, the 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 flashbacks to these accounts, can interfere in our day to day living. Uh, the person who's been exposed to that can feel so overwhelmed that it actually then interferes in their day-to-day living. Hmm. So do, can we then, so in other words, when you say vicarious, it's it's really in your mind, it's it's almost your, your body and mind can react as if it happened to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's actually um, a phenomenon seen more regularly in people like me. Um, Not that I have experienced it, Mm -hmm. but what I mean by that is uh, therapists and counselors. So we, on a very regular basis, therapists and counselors, we hear the graphic accounts of people who have been hurt, abused, um, uh, assaulted. um, And uh, when, when you're a young counselor in the field, those things can certainly... Uh, also be very, very overwhelming and can can also create that uh, vicarious trauma or secondary uh, victimization, so to speak. I've always wondered why we don't, and I, mental health is still kind of new in the sense that people, you know, understand it more now that, than they, and it seems like as time goes on, people are just more open to, um, you know, admitting it and getting help for it and not being, you know, the stigma isn't quite what it used to be. It's still there. Um, but certainly it's getting better. Do you foresee a time when, you know, even just on a government level, when we treat mental health the way we do with our regular health, in other words, it's, you know, it's covered. We're entitled to this amount of time, you know, time a month or whatever, where we can seek mental health. And regardless of our income, uh, we should be able, you know, we should be entitled to it in a sense. So um, that's the aspirational goal. That's what we're going towards um, in healthcare. Mental health care is like the poor cousin 
to physical health care. Which is crazy because, I mean, and what's more important than our health? Yeah. The poorer cousin. Right. Uh, in that. And, you know, that's just evidenced by, you know, when you look at the amount of spending uh, for these uh, different forms of health needs. So do I see a time when that will change? You know, it, we've been singing this song for as long as I've been a social worker, some 35 years. Uh, and it, and I, don't, I don't know that it's necessarily improved, Anthony, mm. in all honesty. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't know. We, we talk about it, we talk about it, but we don't see the money to support all the talk. Having said that, uh, if there's an upside, it's that we are talking about it. It's that uh, it is making its way to budgeting agendas. It is in the mind of the public in a way that it's never been before. So we talk about the mental health of our first responders, of, of our uh, people who serve in our military and armed forces, and uh, this is all a good thing to, to destigmatize mm-hmm. these issues. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we have, you know, weeks where, you know, and Bell's obviously, you know, Bell gets something out of it as well. And it's a nice kind of promo tool. But it is good that the, the dialogue is open. We, you know, people hashtagging and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's good social marketing. Yeah. You know, we thank Bell for doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, clearly it gives them a, um, a certain profile. Yeah. And it kind of fits, you know, helping people to communicate, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need more of that than just, once a year, right? you know, that shot in the arm. It's a good shot in the arm, don't get me wrong, but these are issues that go uh, day in and day out. Are, th- are there programs for, you know, low-income people that, that do need the help and it's just, you know, they can't afford it? So from a mental health perspective and services, there's, there's just a dearth of these services, and then children's mental health, there's even less. And so we find that there can be long waiting lists. Mm. And, you know, if, uh, God forbid, you or I have cancer, um, we're going to be whisked into cancer care real fast. There's an understanding that you need to treat these things really quickly lest they spread. And so, you know, that's what we want to do. We want to catch these cancers quickly, get them into treatment, get them treated. In mental health, the waiting lists are so long that sadly, people aren't able to access the services until they're near suicidal or mm. suicidal right. or self-harming or a risk to others. And so that, that thinking where we want to be preventative from the from respect of this getting worse um, and treat early and get people in quickly, we don't seem to have that same thinking, that same kind of urgency with mental health. And, you know, as a result, people like me, I'm in private practice. People pay good money out of pocket to sit in front of me because they don't have the timely access to uh, public services. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, yeah, you're in a good living from it, but I'd be just as happy for there to be better public services. Absolutely. Uh, Gary Dierenfeld, a registered social worker, interaction consultant. You can reach him. YourSocialWorker.com. Gary, as always, I appreciate you joining me. My pleasure. Stay well yourself, my friend. I'll do my best. The job, the job doesn't help, but uh, <laughs> but I'll do my best. All right, take care, Gary. You too. Yeah, it's always fascinating to me that there aren't 
I, I don't understand. I mean, what's more important to your health than your brain and what's going on mentally? I mean, it's, it's everything, literally everything. And uh, it just, it's, it's hard to get any kind of help when you need it. It's just to sit in front of a therapist. I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of dollars on the low end, an hour. And realistically, for someone that does need some assistance on an urgent level, they need to maybe see a therapist three times a week. Well, who's going to be able to afford, you know, a thousand bucks a week for a therapist? It's just not, it's not practical and it's, it's so important. So I don't know. Maybe the, hopefully there will be a time. I, I don't know. I know there are services out there that do offer free, but again, there's waiting lists and no offense to those people that are volunteering their time. I don't know that you're always getting the best help either. I mean, again, I don't know personally, but I'd want to ensure that the person that's treating me, my mental health, is you know on top of their game. And sometimes it's the ones that are more expensive that can give you the, the most help. So it's not really fair in that sense.